Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In the first part of this chapter, we have the conclusion of what is often called the fool's speech. It is a highly rhetorical, profoundly ironic presentation in which Paul simultaneously exalts his lowliness while criticizing the crass and self-aggrandizing approach of the false apostles. Leaders who boast about their power, their manliness, or their success only demonstrate that they have absolutely no understanding of the gospel. In this second part of the fool's speech, Paul takes aim at the charismatic boasting of the false apostles. He says that he could meet them on their own ground. He, he could talk about incredible experiences and secret revelations. He could do that. But that would be problematic, and that would go against the will and desire of the Lord. In fact, he says that to keep him from becoming conceited, so great were his experiences, a thorn in the flesh was given to him by the Lord. And the point is fairly obvious. Spiritual experiences actually threaten to undermine the usefulness of a Christian leader, tempting him to pride and self-reliance, and therefore are utterly unsuitable as a grounds for self-commendation and boasting. In the latter half of the chapter, he speaks to them again about what they need to do in order to properly prepare for his upcoming visit. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. I must go on boasting. Though there's nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Now, I suppose it goes without saying that Paul is the man who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. We know that because he says in verse 7 that to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. So, Obviously, if the revelations had been given to someone else, then the thorn in the flesh would have been given to that someone else as well, because the two things are connected. Paul is saying, in a highly rhetorical fashion, that it is really inappropriate for a Christian leader to be boasting about spiritual experience, which implies that this was exactly what his opponents were doing. A real Christian leader would be extremely reticent to speak about such things. And therefore, Paul is demonstrating extreme reticence in his presentation. So he says that 14 years ago, this man, Paul, was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. 
Okay, what does that mean? The idea of being caught up into heaven was well known within the Jewish tradition. One thinks immediately of Enoch in the book of Genesis. Genesis 5.24 says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Closed quote. Or we think of the famous rapture of Elijah in the chariots of fire. 2 Kings 2, 11-12 says, And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Okay, so, wow. Uh, for Paul to have an experience like that would basically place him within the elite of the elite in terms of biblical characters. So if these false apostles want to go toe-to-toe on spiritual experience, Paul has them beat hands down. But again, that would be problematic. As soon as you start boasting about such things, you have wandered off the way of the cross. The way of the cross is down into service and suffering, not yet up into glory and reward. So Paul is very cautious. Interesting, too, is this detail about the vision having taken place 14 years ago. So if Paul is writing this letter in A.D. 56, then this vision took place in A.D. 42, when Paul was a nobody. After his escape from Damascus and before his reemergence in Antioch a decade later. Now, as for what is meant by the third heaven, obviously that's just another way of referring to paradise, as the expressions are used interchangeably in verses 2 and 3. The third heaven is the presence of God. The sky above us is the first heaven, and the stars above that are the second heaven. And then the presence of God is the third heaven, the ultimate heaven, the throne room of the Creator. That's how those terms tended to be used in the culture at the time. So Paul was taken up there into the throne room of the Creator. Whether in the body or out of the body, he does not know. And he saw things there and heard things there that he cannot speak about, though those things definitely left their mark on him. Mark Seifert sees a potential connection between this experience and Paul's reference to speaking in the tongues of angels. He says, the claim to speak with the tongues of angels, he puts in brackets there, 1 Corinthians 13.1, might well be coupled with this claim, since a visit to paradise not infrequently entails an encounter with angelic beings who guide the seer or who surround the divine throne, closed quote. So this visit changed him, but he will not make it the basis of his claim to authority. That's not how leadership in the Church of Jesus Christ works. It's not as though the one with the most experiences gets to be in charge. In fact, the one with the most experiences might be the most arrogant and self-reliant, and therefore might be the last person who should be in charge. Again, this is all part of the highly rhetorical presentation that Paul is making here. Yes, he has had incredible experiences, but those experiences didn't make him as a leader. In fact, they threatened to break him. And therefore, he was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. That's verse 7. Now, what is this thorn in the flesh? That, of course, is one of the great mysteries in the study of the New Testament. Of course, we don't know because Paul doesn't say We can, however, make some educated guesses. David Garland, for example, says here, that the thorn is in the flesh would seem to indicate some bodily affliction. 
Most interpreters therefore have assumed that Paul alludes by thorn to some bodily ailment. This view is reinforced by Paul's mention of a physical illness that detained him in Galatia and led to his preaching the gospel to them, referring there to Galatians 4, 13 to 14, closed quote. All right, that all seems very reasonable to me. Paul was given some kind of physical or bodily ailment that served as a humiliating, though not debilitating, impediment in the ministry. I tend to think the most likely candidate would be some kind of issue with his eyes. Paul refers to signing his epistles in giant, awkward letters, suggesting that he had bad eyesight, which of course would be very embarrassing. Paul would need to use a scribe. He would even perhaps need to be led by the hand across treacherous footing. It would be awkward in social situations. We remember Paul claiming not to have known that it was the high priest who was addressing him in Acts 23. All of that does seem to suggest bad eyesight. Whatever it was, it was from God, even though it is referred to as a messenger of Satan. Now, how can that be? How, how can something be both from God and from Satan? Well, of course, as a Bible reader, you are very familiar with this concept. It is sometimes referred to by theologians as double causality. We think, for example, of the matter of the census referred to in 1 Chronicles 21 and also in 2 Samuel 24. In 1 Chronicles 21, it says, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. However, in 2 Samuel 24, it says, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. Close quote. Okay, so which is it, Satan or the Lord? And the answer, of course, is both. The Lord incited David by allowing Satan to incite David. Satan is a dog on a chain. He can only do what God permits him to do. And God shortens and lengthens his chain in order to accomplish purposes that are in accordance with his perfect and ultimately benevolent will. Of course, Satan would have given the Apostle Paul all the diseases. He hated Paul. He wanted him dead. But God gave Satan a very narrow permit. He could slow Paul. He could embarrass Paul. He could hinder Paul. But nothing that would keep him permanently sidelined. Nothing that would make it impossible for him to travel around and plant churches. The devil could make it hard and humiliating, but he didn't have permission to kill him or permanently disable him. Okay, so that was the length of chain he was given. And the goal, from God's perspective was to keep Paul from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. Charismatic experiences are dangerous. They can be simultaneously helpful and harmful to the person who receives them. And, and that's why real leaders are so incredibly careful about them. We, we think, for example, of how careful Jesus was when it came to signs and wonders. People were always asking for them, and Jesus was frequently found refusing their requests because of the dangers inherent in building a ministry or a reputation on the basis of signs and wonders. And the Apostle Paul was equally careful. He says in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 18, that he speaks in tongues more than anyone at Corinth, and yet there is no record in the Bible of him actually doing that. So, it must have been in private. It was, it was something secret. It was something for him that wasn't to be shared with others 
wasn't to be performed in front of others. We need a category for that. Now, with respect to this thorn in the flesh, Paul prayed three times for it to be taken away. Why three times? We don't know. Maybe he was thinking of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying three times for the cup to pass from him before finally embracing that as the will of God. Maybe Paul said, well, if Jesus only prayed three times for his cup of suffering to pass from him, far be it from me to pray more than that for my suffering to be taken from me. That could be it. Either way, whatever it was, he didn't get what he asked for. That much is clear. But God did answer his prayer. F.F. Bruce puts it this way. He says, his prayer was indeed answered, not by his deliverance from the affliction, but by his receiving the necessary grace to bear it, close quote. That's it exactly. God always answers our prayers, just not always in the way that we want him to or expect him to. Sometimes he lifts us out of the valley, and sometimes he gives us the strength to walk through it as he does for the Apostle Paul here. Verse 9, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. This is really the high point of Paul's argument in the fool's speech. Indeed, it is the high point of his argument in 2 Corinthians. In fact, Scott Haffeman says here, To comment on these verses in our words is to risk detracting from their own profundity. Closed quote. I resonate with Haffman's sense here and, and his hesitation. There is a sense in which we're on profoundly holy ground here. Verse 9, these verses together, but verse 9 in particular, present the gospel of Jesus Christ in miniature, and one does worry about ruining it through one's attempts to explain it, and I shall endeavor not to do that. Paul has been saying all along that he's a jar of clay, 2 Corinthians 4.7. And therefore, these frailties, his cracks, his wear and tear, his punctures and perforations, as it were, do not obscure the glories of Christ, but rather, and paradoxically, they serve to display them. Each of these things, whether it be his thorn in the flesh, his bodily ailments, his age, his lack of rhetorical flair, his his many beatings and imprisonments, his many worries and anxieties, all of these things, which could be labeled as weaknesses, are really opportunities for the display of God's power in Christ through him. All of these things provide an opportunity for Paul to acknowledge his limitations and to call out for grace and mercy and to receive such things and to therefore be entirely clear that the glory in his life and ministry must go to the Lord and not to him. It it keeps Christ at the center of of everything. Paul has discovered that he is most strong when he is relying on the Lord for strength. He is most effective when he is asking the Lord to do through him that which he cannot do for himself. As Haffman carefully explains here, the promise of God's grace and power leads Paul to be pleased in his sufferings rather than continuing to pray for their removal because he now knows that when he is weak, then he is strong, Close quote. If more weakness means more of the presence and help of God, then bring it on. That's what he says in the second half of verse 9. 
Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I am content in this place, this this place of strength in weakness, presence in frailty, anointing in affliction. That's, That's my sweet spot now, Paul says. Thanks be to God. That's the end of the fool's speech, properly speaking. It is a rhetorical masterpiece, which is kind of ironic because one of the criticisms of Paul was that he was not a master of rhetoric. Of course, the entire speech is characterized by irony. Paul has given a reverse resume, which turns out to be the model we should all aspire to. We should hope to have weaknesses, challenges, frailties, and failures in life that put us in the position confront our humanity, and to experience God's mercy, grace, and presence. That's where character is formed, and that's where the real power for life and ministry is found. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Verse 11, I have been a fool, you forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super-apostles even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches? Except that I myself did not burden you. (laughs) Forgive me this wrong. This is sort of the epilogue to the fool's speech. Here, Paul regrets having had to engage in this sort of talk in the first place, rhetorical, ironic, or otherwise. There is something distasteful about the whole business but they forced him to it. For whatever reason, they were attracted to brash, boastful, worldly leaders and were in danger of following them right off the cliff. So Paul does what he has to do, though it should never have been necessary. After all, the signs of a true apostle were done among them with signs, wonders, and mighty works. Now, this would seem to indicate that part of the function of signs and wonders in the New Testament era was to authenticate the authorized spokespersons of Jesus. The apostles were given extraordinary authority. Jesus only ministered publicly for a little over three years, so the foundation of this movement needed to be fleshed out, and the apostles were the ones authorized to do that. But of course, anyone could say that they were an apostle, so signs and wonders were given as part of how apostles were to be authenticated. But of course, we remember from the Exodus story that signs and wonders can be imitated, We think of Pharaoh's magicians who were able to duplicate the first several signs done by Moses and Aaron. So lying signs and wonders have always been accounted for in the Bible, and yet they are part of how a true representative of God identifies himself. And so Paul is saying here, all of those expected authentications were in fact given. You saw, you experienced, you know. So why were you so easily led astray? (laughs) Was it that I didn't receive a salary from you? Forgive me this wrong. It is remarkable how such small things can knock people off the path of life and onto the path of apostasy. I think we should all be humbled by that. Verse 14, here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. 
If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Again, Paul positions himself as a father here. He says, I'm coming to help you. I don't need your help. I'm not looking for your help. I'm, I'm like a dad coming over to his newly married son's house to unclog the toilet. And I'm going to slip you 50 bucks so you can take your wife out for date night, okay? It's my job to support and launch you, not the other way around. He refers to Titus here, who has been often among them and who has followed Paul's example. Neither of them have attempted to exploit the Corinthians in any way. Therefore, it's time to put all suspicion and coldness away. Paul is their spiritual father. Titus is their older brother. And it's time to re-engage with the family business. So let's just put all this nonsense behind us. Verse 19. Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I'm may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. So here Paul says that his ultimate goal in in this letter, and in the fool's speech in particular, I think we can say, has not been to defend himself, but rather to educate them as to what really matters in Christian leadership. They shouldn't be enamored with tales of power and spiritual experience. They should be thinking about serving, sacrificing, and suffering in the way of Christ. So let's get on with that. It's time to put away self-indulgence. It's time to close the book on petty squabbles. It's time to re-engage with the mission and calling of Christ. I hope you're ready to do that, he says, because that is what we will be focused on during my upcoming visit. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. 
Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 